Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Luke chapter 18, <clears throat> beginning in verse 15, Luke chapter 18, uh, beginning in 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Uh, Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our eyes to this living word that has the power to bring life from the dead, those who are lost without Christ, that you might bring them forth through your word, through the word of life, and for those of us who know Christ, Father, that you would produce spiritual life through this word. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I love the Word of God. And one of the reasons why I love it is it's so surprising. It's so counterintuitive to everything else in the world. It's the opposite of man's words. God thinks in ways that we don't think. God loves things that we don't love, and he hates things that we don't hate. And so when we come to the Word of God, we come to something wholly different than anything else. As I glance through chapter 18, what a glorious chapter. What a glorious thing that we have gospels, the words of Jesus Christ, the account of his life. And when we look at this chapter, just, and I look at the headings, the parable of the persistent widow that we looked at, God hears the prayer of one of the most insignificant people in society according to everyone else. He gladly hears the prayer of the widow. And Jesus wants us to know that we should be persistent in praying for the second coming of Christ. And then we saw last week that a Pharisee, the biggest dog in society, in comparison to a Pharisee, the greatest spiritual person of their day, the tax collector, 
is justified and the Pharisee is not. That's incredible. That was shocking to hear that the man who could only say, God be merciful to me, a sinner, was saved based merely out of a desperate plea with nothing to offer. And then we get to this text where literally the most insignificant people in Jesus' day, children who could do nothing, Jesus wants them. And heaven's full of them. And then we get the rich man, the rich young ruler, the man who has everything going for himself, but leaves sad, not saved. And then Jesus, the one who is going to rise, be lifted higher than anyone else, is going to do that through dying on a cross. That's in verse 31. And then we see a blind beggar at the end of chapter 18. Jesus is coming. Yes, the important Christ is coming in the most, one of the most insignificant, annoying people a blind beggar starts crying out and they say, shut up. He's, he's, this is an important time. He's coming by. You shut up. And Jesus says, no, I want to hear from him. I love the word of God. It's different than how we think. God is an awesome God. We ended last week. Look at verse 13 and 14. We read, but the tax collector, in comparison to the Pharisee's prayer that prayed all about himself, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is striking at humility. You want to know who's going to be justified? The humble. That's who will be exalted up. I was listening to an Ask Pastor uh, John a few months ago. The title of the Ask Pastor John was uh, What You Need More Than Self-Confidence. Someone was wrote in and wanted to know how they could have more self-confidence. And Piper says, well, let me tell you about something you need more than self-confidence. Self-confidence is one of these things we find normal in the world. We hear about self-esteem, self-reliance, self-productivity, self-confidence. We hear about inner power, finding the center of yourself, your inner balance, so you can have ultimate self-consciousness. 
If, if there's hope in this world, the psychologists and the world's going to point you within. There's goodness in there. Go find it. But what Piper said, we need more than self-confidence is humility. And he quoted John Calvin. Calvin, who quotes both Christendom, who is an early church father, and Augustine, said this. He says, I've always been exceedingly delighted with the words of Christendom. The foundation of our philosophy is humility. And more with the words of Augustine. As the orator, when asked, what is the first precept of eloquence, answered, delivery. What is the second? Delivery. What is the third? Delivery. So Calvin says, so if you ask me in regard to the precepts of Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. Calvin wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and if you got a chance to ask him, what's the main precept that all of Christianity stands on? What's your philosophy of Christianity? Calvin's going to say humility, humility, humility. And here's why Piper agrees. Piper says, quote, Humility is the soil in which every good, everything good in the Christian life grows. Humility is the soil in which everything good in the Christian life grows. And if that soil goes away, everything good withers. It's unique in that regard. And then he illustrated it. He says, take faith. That's a good virtue. Would anyone depend on Christ as needy and weak and a sinful person if he had not been given humility? Take worship. Would anyone earnestly make much of the worth of God instead of craving to be made much of if God had not given him humility? Take obedience. Would anyone surrender his autonomy and submit obediently to the absolute authority of Scripture if God hadn't given them humility? Take love. Would anyone seek the good of others at the cost of himself if God had not created in his heart humility? And so when Jesus brings up the topic of humility and points to the tax collector's prayer as evidence of this, as one who's going to be elevated. He continues on. Luke continues on as he shares in this same uh, truth as we look at these infants that were being brought to Christ. So let's look at verse 15. The drive of this sermon is this. Come to God in Christ for entrance into the kingdom. Come to God in Christ for entrance into the kingdom. And under these first 
two verses, verses 15 and 16, we need to learn what Christ values. Whenever we read the scripture, the first question you should always ask is, what does this teach me about God? What makes this book so glorious is not just that you can find out how you can be saved, but God is revealed here. You find out who God is in the scripture. We read in verse 15, now they were bringing even infants, even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Here we see the heart of Christ, which is bright and large and glorious against the backdrop of the darkness of the hearts of the disciples. Two totally different responses. We see the disciples rebuking those who are bringing the infants. And we say, see Christ not only saying, no, let him come, but he's saying, heaven is full of such as these. They were wrong about Christ. They were wrong about God. Children in Jesus' day were meant to be seen but not heard. Much different than our day. In our day, children are praised in ways that maybe even aren't health, is, isn't healthy. Children run households. Children control families. And we see almost everyone bowing down to the will of children. We ought to value children that is correct. So it might be hard for us to understand the context in which this event is taking place. In this context, children were meant to be seen but not heard. They were as insignificant as one could be because of their inability to produce in society. They weren't useful. All as an infant can do is take. They can't produce something to add to society. They can't accomplish any moral feats. They can't have any great thoughts that can help those in society. They can't work hard and produce something. They are suckers, literally, right? They are takers. They could only merely take. And we can kind of understand this. When was the last time you've seen a three-week-old receive some incredible award for something 
they have done. When was the last time a three-week-old received the Nobel Peace Prize? We honor productivity. Has anyone said, hey, look at Bill over here. Bill eats really good. He sleeps really good. And he soils himself really good. Let's give Bill a prize. We don't do that. We can understand why the children, infants, seem like wasting Jesus' time. An infant takes your money, takes your time, takes your food, takes up room in the shelter. They take your energy. The value of a child, it wasn't that there was no value of a child in those days, but it was potential value. It was one day this child is going to be a productive member of society. When I was in Africa, the four-year-old had to produce. The four-year-old was the last to eat a lot of times. The resources weren't there. So you saw four-year-olds with little infants strapped to their back carrying water. But all of their worth, so it seemed, is in the potential of them growing up in one day being productive in the family, carrying on the family name. But as the disciples watch this, their potential isn't realized yet. They're just infants. And there's only so many hours in a day, and Jesus is doing important work. And so maybe we shouldn't think the disciples are so crazy when they said, come on. Can you please just keep your children and let Jesus do the important stuff? But Jesus received them. We know from Mark and Matthew's account that he blessed them. He prayed for them. He wanted them to come. If you remember back in Luke 16, in verse 15, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's Jesus basically saying, what men think is great, God and here we have an example. What the Pharisees thought, or what the disciples thought was reasonable, Jesus had the opposite point of view. This has always been the problem for mankind and even for uh, those in Israel. In Psalm 50, 21, a psalm where... Uh, Israel 
with all their works, with all their sacrifices, God says, you think if I'm hungry, I'm going to come to you? <laughs> I'm the one that owned the cattle. You really think if I need a house, I'm going to ask you to build a house for me? And what was their problem? In verse 21, it says, these things you have done, and I've been silent. You thought I was like one of yourself. See, the mistake we make when we come to Scripture is it's just wisdom like we have. Or when we come to God is He's just like we are. But He's different. He wanted the children to be brought. And then in verse 16, but Jesus called to them, called them to Him saying, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for... And so here's the purpose clause. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Let them come for this reason. For to such belong the children of God. What, is it, what does he mean when he says to such belongs the kingdom of God? There's really two options here. One is... He's looking at the children and, he said, and, he, and he's only making the point, unless you become like them, those are the only ones getting into heaven. Or he could be saying, heaven is filled with infants, with children. And then with that truth, he then points to, and you adults, unless you become like them, you will not enter. And I believe it's the second one. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Here's what John MacArthur says. The reality that children die proves that they are sinners and not morally neutral. So to say that an infant that dies will go to heaven is not to say that they're not born in sin. The Bible's clear, Ephesians 2. For we're by nature children of wrath. We bear Adam's guilt. We're born in Adam. And the fact that children die, infants die, is proof that they're also under the curse from Adam's sin. So don't hear me saying that babies are sinless because they're not. They're born with a sin nature. And so MacArthur says, but in a child... Sin is not yet developed to the degree that it produces conscious resistance to the law and will of God. The reality that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these means that until they reach the condition where they are accountable to God for the work of the law in their conscience and can understand the truth of the gospel, children are in God's gracious care. That care is realized when children die. This is not to say that all children are saved, then lost at the time of accountability. In fact, when Jesus said the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, he was referring to the present form of the kingdom, which is spiritual, the realm of salvation. Children who die before reaching the condition of accountability are then secured in the kingdom forever. Is that just wishful thinking? Is that just what we 
want to think? Does the scripture support such a thing? Is Jesus actually saying, let him come for to such as these infants is the kingdom of God. It's full of them. In Deuteronomy 139, we read, And as for your little ones, who you said would become prey in your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. <laughs> so Moses says, when you didn't trust God enough to go into the kingdom, these children that you said were going to be prey and die in the wilderness, just so you know, they're going to enter. And he describes the children as having no knowledge of good and evil. And so they're going to be able to go in to the land. He says, I'll give it. To them I'll give it, and they shall possess it. And then in Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, at the end of the book of Jonah, God says to Jonah, And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle? Should I not pre preserve them? Should I really just destroy Nineveh when there's 120 people that don't know their right hand from their left? Who would that be? Little children. And then God says there's also cattle there. And so you begin to see something of the heart of God Someone might say, well, I don't believe in the age of accountability. That's just brought up in, in, in our imagination. Well, Isaiah 7, 14 says this in this famous prophecy of the, the virgin that shall bear Christ. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and do good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land of who these two kings who you dread will be deserted. So the prophet is pointing over to a mother that hasn't even given birth yet and, she's, and he says, before that woman gives birth to a child and he's old enough to refuse evil and choose good, those two kings are going to be gone. Don't worry about it. God's the one who gives us the idea. Not that children are born sinful, but there's a point of conscious knowing good and evil with our intellect. It was God's plan that we start as helpless infants and grow into knowledge. Jeremiah 19.4 says this, because people have forsaken me and profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom they neither are, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, 
because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not commend or decree, nor did it come to my mind. So here you have the prophet saying <laughs> that they filled this place with the blood of the innocents, and the innocents are the children that are being offered up to Baal. Are children innocent in their nature? No. But in the mind of Jeremiah, speaking in the Holy Spirit, they filled the place with the blood of the innocent. We live through this in our day. The atrocity of abortion. What, 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 what can that insignificant child add to society? Leave it up to the mother to end the life. It's not significant. Doesn't even have conscious thoughts yet. They were killing their children back then. And we live in a culture that continues to not value unborn life. So those are all passages that help us see this category that God might have in his mind. But even a greater example, I think, is in 2 Samuel 12, when King David, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, gives birth to a son that God says, through Nathan, is going to die because of his David's sin. Here's what we read. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. They couldn't, they, they, they couldn't understand it. They couldn't console David when the child was alive. But then he dies and all of a sudden David seems like he's okay. Here's what David says. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David, speaking in the Holy Spirit, says he will go to be with this child as the reason for why he's done fasting. And you juxtapose that with his son Absalom when Absalom dies in 2 Samuel 18.33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. So Absalom had died. And as he went, he said, Oh, Absalom, oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. And the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, 
Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, my son, my son. Why? The difference. Because he's not going to see Absalom one day. And he knew he wasn't going to see Absalom again. John Piper would point to Romans 1, 18, beginning in 18 for the reason in Scripture for why we can believe that infants would go to heaven when they die. What we read in Romans 1, 18 is, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So why is the wrath of God revealed? Because men in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now listen to Paul's argument. So they are without excuse. Why are they without excuse? Because they've clearly seen that God is God through the things that have been made. So that if it wasn't clearly perceived, it must also be that they would have had an excuse. That's Paul's reasoning for why the wrath of God is revealed. Does that mean when an infant dies, they don't need to be covered by the blood of Christ? No. Because they're born in Adam and they need Christ to be saved. Is there any reason we see in the scripture to think that God might show grace to infants or those who are mentally handicapped and unable to understand the law of God and rebel against it. I think there's great reason. Jesus also said, one more, in John 9, 39, Jesus having a discussion with the Pharisees says, for judgment and I came into the, into the world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. What? They're born in Adam. So what's he getting at? If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Truly I say to you, he who does not enter the... he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. The Pharisees thought they were going to climb into the fold of God by their good works. They thought they were saw so clearly and they were so smart. But Jesus says your guilt remains because of the knowledge you have. And this is really the view of, uh, of the Christian church Uh, by most people throughout the ages. John Calvin wrote this. Those little children have not yet, have not yet any understanding 
to desire his blessing. But when they are presented to him, he gently and kindly receives them and dedicates them to the Father by solemn act of blessing to exclude from the grace of redemption those who are of the age of that age would be too cruel. It is presumption and sacrilege to drive far from the fold of Christ those whom he cherishes in his bosom and to shut the door and exclude as strangers those he does not wish to be forbidden to come to him. Charles Hodge wrote this, uh, of such the children he tells us the kingdom of heaven as though heaven is in great measure composed of the souls of the redeemed saints. B.B. Warfield says the same thing. So Jesus points to the children and says, let them come to me, for heaven is filled with children, with these infants. And then he applies it to adults. Verse 17, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So the big question is this. What part of childlikeness is Jesus getting at? So you say, I want to get into the kingdom of God. I'm going to receive the kingdom of God. Jesus says, well, don't just want to receive it. You better receive it like a child or whatever you're receiving won't do you any good. You're not getting in. So what part of this illustration of these children is Jesus getting at? There's three main things people point to. One is the humility little children possess because they lack anything to boast of and can make no claim on God. That was Robert Stein. So one is humility. Another option is this, a simple faith free of doubt. How a children just goes to their parents with this simple faith. Another option would be a lack of attachment to possessions. He goes into the rich young ruler next. Children, and especially infants, don't seem to be captivated with what adults are captivated when it comes to different things. But I think the, while all those are true, I think humility is the main drive because of Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. What is Jesus getting at? Here's what he says in Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And we asked Jesus the question, well, What do you mean by that? Here's what he says next Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So that's why I think humility is what he's driving at. Unless you come to the kingdom of God saying, my only claim to enter is need, but, but nothing to offer. 
What can a child offer? What, especially in infant. I love Isaiah 40. <laughs> because you have the man is like grass, and then you have this God. <laughs> in verse 9 of, of chapter 4, he says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God, behold the Lord God comes with might and his arms rule before him. Behold, his reward is with him. So good news, look to your God, his arms rule for him with might. And then he says this, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom, between his breasts, and gently lead those that are with young. So you have this fierce mighty God that destroys enemies, but gently grabs lambs, these little lambs, and holds them to his chest. And then he talks about those arms again. He goes on to say, who measures the waters in the hollow of his hands? How big are these arms that carry you, that hold you? Isaiah loved this imagery of God carrying his people. In Isaiah 46, uh, you had two main idols, Bel, which is another name for Baal. And, and here's what he says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, another idol. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry and are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop and bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. So when the Persian uh, king... Cyrus comes and takes over Babylon. They take their gods and they put them on top of cows and they walk their gods away. And, and here's what Isaiah says. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and will save. To whom then will you like, liken me or make me an equal? Who will you compare me? God says, I'm going to carry the gray-haired old man. I'm the one that's going to carry you. Psalm 50 that I referenced earlier For beasts of the, or he says, I'll not accept, verse 9, Psalm 50, I'll not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the field is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all the moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I want to tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Here's what you offer God. You ready? Here's the application. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Ready? Here's what you do. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. There you go. You want to enter the kingdom of God and be one that glorifies God? All right. Call upon me in the day of trouble. Let me carry you. 
That's what glorifies me. What God hates is look at our sacrifices. Look at what we're doing. God hates that. He made you. You're born by him. You're born again by him. He will carry you to the end of your life. I got to give you one more from Isaiah. It's too good. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. That's God. Who inhabits eternity. (laughs) That's a big God. Whose name is holy. That's a scary God. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also, get ready. Because who in the world is that God going to dwell with? And also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's who the holy God dwells with in the high and holy place. Paul said, when he asked for his thorn to be taken away, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So here's what Paul does. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me for the sake of Christ then. I'm content in weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, he is strong. He bragged about his weakness. Babies can't do much, but they can do something. What do babies do so well? They cling. Have you ever had a baby grab onto your finger? Have you ever seen a nursing baby grab onto the mother's shirt like this, just grab on? Infants can cling to their mother as though their whole life depends on it, because it does. Their food, their shelter, to be cleaned up, to be bathed, a baby can merely cling. And the question for you is this. Have you received the kingdom of God like a child? Have you been humbled and broken and weak with nothing to offer God? With nothing in your hands to bring but simply to the cross? You cling? Have you come to God in that way? Or have you thought, okay, I'm going to become a good one and enter into the kingdom of God and then God's going to be so happy to have a good one like me? Have you been humbled? Have you been broken? Because most of the religious people thought they were entering into the kingdom of God, but they weren't entering as children. And it's my prayer that you know that Christ has everything you need to enter. He's died for your sins. He's lived your perfect life. 
His resurrection is a guarantee of your resurrection. You're adopted into his family. God's going to feed you and sustain you for all eternity. Will you have him? Will you cling to him? Let, let me end by reading the verse to a song we sang last week. Nothing in my hands I bring. This is Rock of Ages. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. <laughs> Foul, to the fountain I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Father, thank you for being a God that saves sinners. Because that's what we are. Father, I pray that you would give us this incredible grace of humility. That the fruits of the Spirit might grow out of this beautiful soil that is Christ-like. Father, we thank you that our Christ gained the highest place in the universe by becoming like a slave, like a servant, bearing our sin, being mocked by this world, but you exalted him. And so we worship you. Father, I pray this in Christ's name.